Oh my gosh, I'm adopting a puppy right now. But I realize what's at home. Oh no, I have nothing. Well, except unconditional love. But yeah, no crate, no pee-pee pads, no dental chews for his little puppy teeth. Before I doubt myself as a new parent, I just get Instacart to deliver everything from PetSmart. Easy, just like raising a puppy is going to be, right? Get Pet Essentials from PetSmart with Instacart. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. This has been the most successful week for the podcast since it started in November 2016 and it finally broke into the top 10 of the UK iTunes All Podcast Chart. As I record now, it's sitting at number 3, which is fantastic. And what this means going forward is um, uh, nothing, no change at all. But still, it's good to see, so thank you so much for listening. A big thank you to this week's supporters on Patreon, Ariel Melton, Kathy Faltermeyer, Fiona Crisp and Marinda Lynch. Thank you so much for your support. And talking of Patreon, Patreon supporter Preethi C alerted me to today's case. Now, Preethi is a mortician and funeral director in rural Oklahoma and remembered the story as one of the main characters is an undertaker in the UK. So thanks for the recommendation, Preethi. I hope you enjoy the episode. We begin today's story in January 2012 and head to Orleton, which is a small village in northern Herefordshire, close to the Welsh border, around 30 miles west of Worcester, with a population of just 800. Let's check out the music at the time. In the UK charts, number one was Jesse J with Domino. In the US, it was We Found Love by Rihanna and Calvin Harris. And for Australia, it was Foster the People with Pumped Up Kicks. So what do you think of that bunch? Not too bad this week, I reckon. In the news, this was the month when a hot air balloon crashed in Carterton, New Zealand, killing 11 people. In the UK, former Royal Bank of Scotland CEO and a man widely blamed for the Financial crisis across the tabloids, Fred the Shed Goodwin lost his knighthood as a result of his catastrophic leadership, almost causing the collapse of the bank during the financial crisis of 2008. And Gary Dobson and David Norris were jailed for life for the murder of Stephen Lawrence. If you're not familiar with the case, this was the racist murder of a young black student who had dreams of being an architect by a group of racist thugs in South London. The case is, I'd say, the highest profile racial murder in the UK and it caused huge cultural changes in the way the police responded to racist crimes. Sadly, the other cowardly killers have yet to be brought to justice. And in sport, the Australian Open tennis finals took place with Djokovic beating Nadal in a five-set thriller and in the ladies' final, Azarenka comfortably beat Sharapova in straight sets. So on to today's case. Rita Tetzel first met John Taylor in Jersey on the Channel Islands, where in 1988 she was on holiday with her newly divorced close friend, Alethea. Rita and Alethea taught together at Blackheath Primary School in the West Midlands, and they've been friends ever since. Alethea's marriage had recently ended as a result of her then-husband's affair, and this is why she joined the Tetzels on holiday in Jersey. John Taylor and his family were staying at the same boarding house in St Helier and the group really got on well together. So much so that when they got home, Taylor invited Rita and Alethea to his home. It was clear that Taylor was attracted to Alethea 
and his feelings were very much reciprocated. Soon they were having an affair, which eventually led to Taylor leaving his wife Patricia and his two children to move into a bungalow she'd bought in Orton. Eight years after they first met in the Channel Islands, the pair married in 1996. While Alethea carried on her career as a teacher, John Taylor continued his career as a manager at ATS Tyres in nearby Leominster, before changing careers in 2007 when he started a funeral business. This turned out to be a great move for Taylor, who very soon found his services in demand, and he made a really comfortable living from this. After she retired from teaching in 2005, Alethea played her part in the business, playing the organ at funerals and helping her husband with office and admin work. Away from the business, Alethea lived a really full and busy life. She was a leader of Evergreens, a group which met regularly in the village to put on outings and activities for the over-60s. The couple were regular churchgoers, and they shared a love of music and singing. They were members of choirs including the Birchpole Singers and Little Hereford Voices Community Choir. Alethea was also a school governor and she volunteered as a National Trust Guide at nearby Berrington Hall. A popular lady, she was described by all in the village as happy, chatty, charming, confident and outgoing. Free Thief from Patreon has told me how an undertaker in Oklahoma has a really prominent role in local society and as you've heard, so it was for the Taylors. Heavily involved in all aspects of the community, they had lots of friends and they were also busy during the week as we can see at various social events. The couple were also in the very fortunate position to have no money worries. In fact, they owned two houses mortgage-free and had nearly £250,000 in various banks and saving accounts. They were regular visitors to the theatre and enjoyed plenty of expensive holidays. Although John was still working hard, at 60, three years younger than his wife, he was thinking about retirement and the couple had lots to look forward to. Life was good, but then everything changed. On the 21st of January 2012, local paper The Shropshire Star carried the following report. A huge police search has been launched after a 63-year-old woman went missing from her home near Ludlow. Alethea Taylor from Orleton was last seen by her husband at their home when he left for work at 8.30am on Thursday. Mr Taylor returned home at 4pm to discover his wife was not at home. She has not been seen since despite an overnight police search involving the helicopter. Chris Ammons, the spokesman for the police, said, We're becoming increasingly concerned about Alethea and are keen to find her and return her home as soon as we can. We believe she is vulnerable and there are concerns about her mental state. Mrs Taylor is white, 5 foot 7, with short dark but slightly greying hair. When she was last seen, she was wearing her nightclothes, but police do not know she got dressed when she left home. Mr Ammons added, We now have a large number of officers assisting with the search for Alethea, but would ask that anyone who believes they may have seen her since yesterday morning to contact us immediately. Alethea's friends and family are becoming more and more concerned about her, and therefore it's vital we find her and reunite her with her husband as soon as we can. The local community was galvanised into action with searches for Alethea made by groups of volunteers, coordinated mainly via Facebook. Author Peter Howell was holidaying in the area, and he describes on his blog how the community was affected. He said, When I went for a Sunday paper from the village shop, 
I talked to a few locals and everyone was mystified. We were due to travel home on Monday, but I've been told a search has been organised that morning, so we decided to stay an extra day and help. We arrived at the village hall to find it a hive of activity. About 80 villagers had turned up with police and members of Seven Area Rescue Association, who were using inflatable boats to search ponds and lakes in the area. After we had signed in, the volunteers were divided into four groups each, with its own leader. Linda and I were in Andrew Summers' group. He owns the village shop. We travelled with him in his jeep in a convoy of cars to the starting point of our search, about two miles east of Orleton. We stretched out in a single line and slowly walked across the fields. Over the course of the day we swept a number of these fields and searched pockets of woodland for Mrs Taylor, or a shoe, or an item of clothing which might lead to her discovery. The only thing we found was an umbrella, which wasn't linked to her. Apparently, I learned later, Mr Taylor was concerned because his wife had recently experienced two or three episodes where she would find herself in a place where she didn't recognise, with no idea who she was. It would seem she'd wandered from home while in this altered state of consciousness. Fortunately, on these occasions she'd been reunited with her husband and the amnesia had passed. I spoke to villagers who described Alethea as a pleasant, jolly person who was a prompter for the current play being put on by the local amateur dramatic society. It seems these amnesiac events were isolated incidents which didn't affect her usual daily life. Peter Howe went home and the searches slowly became fewer and despite 29 potential sightings of Alethea to police these were quickly discounted. Life for the villagers quickly returned to normal. When the police were informed about the missing woman, PC Alan Toby arrived at John Taylor's home to investigate and he found Taylor there with several friends. Taylor told him he had last seen his wife that morning before he left to wash a hearse in preparation for a funeral. He returned home at 10.45am to drop off buckets in the garage but did not go into the house and did not see his wife. He then went to do some work on a property he bought nearby. His wife had been due to join him there, but he called her several times and he received no reply. Villagers told the police that poor John Taylor had gone round the village in that afternoon, asking if anyone had seen Alethea that day, becoming more anxious and he was close to tears. There was great sympathy for the local undertaker. But the police immediately made two discoveries, which shed new light on the investigation. As they'd looked around the house, a family friend had shown her Alethea's bedroom where a bracelet was on the bedside table. The friend said that Alethea never went out without the bracelet because it had been a present from her father which had incredible sentimental value. This was strange in itself, but the second discovery was even more significant. They uncovered two notebooks that contained diary entries from Alethea which had been kept from her husband. These books painted a very different picture of the relationship than the happy, doting couple the rest of the village saw and spoke about. In the notebooks, Alethea made it very clear she was incredibly unhappy. She talked about her husband as Mr Nasty and of feeling churned up and desperately upset. The reason for this was contained in the diary where she stated that her husband had become besotted with a certain little widow and they were having an affair. Alethea had tried to talk to him when she discovered the affair, but he became withdrawn or angry whenever she tried to speak about their marriage. 
In one passage, she wrote, I'm an unnecessary frump at this moment. Following this discovery, Taylor was asked about this alleged relationship with 53-year-old Alison Deersley, but he insisted they were just friends. When the police asked what had happened to his wife, he told the police that he suspected she'd dementia and had wandered off on two previous occasions before she disappeared. He told police he'd once found his wife crying and disorientated in a lane, but again, police officers found it somewhat strange that despite his fears about her mental health, he'd never once taken her to see a doctor. As the days went on with no sign of Alethea, the police had grave concerns for her well-being. No money had been taken from her bank account, and all of her clothes and treasured possessions remained in the family home. Even at this early stage, police strongly suspected that her husband John Taylor had killed his wife, but the issue was trying to prove it. The lack of a body, and no evidence of an attack, meant this was never going to be a straightforward murder investigation. Plainclothes officers started to follow John Taylor around, to funerals, and in other parts of his everyday life. His actions made the police following him even more certain that he had murdered Lethia. The day after he reported her missing, he invited his mistress, Alison Deersley, around for breakfast. Police felt that as this was the first time she'd actually come to his home, this was a sign that Taylor must have been confident that his wife was not going to return. The couple were seen on a number of occasions laughing, joking and enjoying time with each other in the village. His calendar changed to reflect his new priorities, with entries relating to Alethea replaced by new ones relating to Alison. Taylor sold his wife's car and removed her from the insurance for his BMW, instead adding Alison's name to the policy. Taylor insisted it was purely because he was decorating the house that he moved most of Alethea's possessions to the loft. But the police saw this very differently. They suspected that all Taylor wanted was to get reference to his missing wife out of the way. At work, Taylor sometimes spoke about his wife to colleagues. In a conversation with funeral director Victoria Allen, he quite often said that somebody must know where she is. He also added that when she disappeared, he told Victoria that he wouldn't have been able to pick her up as she was a good size 14 to 16 in dress size. The months went by, and six months after Alethea disappeared, Taylor continued to be interviewed by police, but as it was always about the same points, he felt the police operation was slowing down and confided in friends his fear that the investigation would soon be dropped. But nothing could be further from the truth, as the police investigation had progressed to the point where they felt a conviction was possible. And to the amazement of Taylor and the local community, in June 2012, John Taylor was arrested and charged on suspicion of murder. His trial began at Worcester Crown Court and John Taylor pleaded not guilty to murder. The police argued simply he'd killed his wife so he could start a new life with his lover and his extensive knowledge of the local area and his professional experience as an undertaker had allowed him to effectively conceal the evidence. One of the first witnesses called was Alison Deersley. Contrary to what Taylor had told the police, Alison confirmed that she had been having an affair with Taylor at the time of his wife's disappearance. Following the death of her husband David in November 2010, John Taylor had prepared his funeral. The couple had known each other for 12 years, 
but it was only after her husband's death that they started an affair. Alison stated that they started a sexual relationship which became so intense that they openly discussed Taylor leaving his wife. Alison said that shortly after the funeral of her husband, Taylor came round to drop off a card and two bottles of wine for her birthday. She said, On my birthday in July, I'd been out for a friend when I came home to find some red roses on the doorstep. There was no note on them, but a few days later, John rang me. He asked me to go out for the day with him, and I asked him if he meant with Alethea, and he said no, just me. I think I said, John, you're married, and it's not appropriate for me to go out for you on your own. I think I asked him to come over for coffee and to talk to me about it. He didn't express his feelings to me on the phone. I think it was when he came round to the house to see me for a chat. He started to talk about his marriage to Alethea. He said they lived together just like brother and sister for five or six years, and he was very unhappy. We did eventually go out for the day. It was just John and I, and I found John very easy to talk to. We just seemed to click. I think I told him how difficult I was finding life about David. I remember him asking me quite early on in the relationship if I was alright for money. I just assumed it was a sort of concerned question you'd ask, as he knew I didn't work. He told me he'd never been so well off in his life. He had the lovely house, the business. I wondered what he was doing with me. The jury heard of texts between the couple talking about living together. In one group of texts, she mentioned looking up houses on the internet and finding a lovely bungalow in Harlech with views of the beach, adding, I think he was thinking about leaving his wife. He was very unhappy. I felt dead when David died, and then John came along, and he brought me so much joy. But I had very mixed feelings about staying in the village. I didn't know if it would be better to move away and have a fresh start. David had so many friends in the community, I always felt if John was to separate from his wife, I didn't think people would accept our relationship. In one text that Taylor sent to her, he said, I don't see how we can last until Christmas. I can't last five months. I'm so attracted to you. When the prosecutor asked Alison what this meant, she replied, I think John was saying he was willing to leave Alethea by Christmas. And Taylor was aiming to be with Alison by Christmas. He'd even bought a house for them so they could be together. In September 2011, he made an offer of £110,000 in cash for an empty property in nearby Leominster. He bought it jointly with Alethea and he told his wife he wanted to do it up as an investment opportunity, which wouldn't have aroused her suspicions as they rented out another house already. The only reason he hadn't left his wife by Christmas seems to be because there were delays in buying this house and the purchase didn't complete until the 23rd of December. So as they moved into 2012, Life went on seemingly as normal for the Taylors, living their normal life at the centre of the community. But John Taylor continued to see and speak to Alison regularly. In fact, between October 2011 and Alethea's disappearance, Taylor called Alison more than 1,200 times from his mobile phone. By contrast, he phoned his wife's mobile just 19 times. Text painted a similar picture. He sent 166 messages to Alison but just two to his wife. The jury heard that Taylor had told friends about his wife's dementia and that he was keen to spread the word around that his wife was losing her mind. But in written testimony, Alethea's GP told the court she had no history of mental health problems and that she'd only suffered one episode related to mental health 
when she complained of work stress as a primary school teacher in 2001. Her friend Rita Tetzel, remember the one who'd been with her when she first met John Taylor, said she'd known Alethea for 40 years and she was gobsmacked when Taylor told her that his wife was suffering from dementia. Rita said she'd never seen anything to make her fear for her friend's mental health, adding that Alethea always sent everyone cards, birthday, anniversary, Easter and New Year. She never forgot. Both she and the second friend, Eve Martin, told the jury they were incredibly surprised when Taylor told them separately that his wife had wandered off on occasion. The prosecution argued that some DNA evidence was also key to the case. The court heard that blood matching Alethea's DNA was found on the duvet in their bedroom and also in the recesses of the rear passenger side door of his car. He explained it by saying his wife had a horrendous nosebleed before she went missing. As days before her disappearance, he'd come home to find his wife sitting on her side of the bed with blood-covered tissues lying on the floor of their bedroom. But by the time of his second interview in June, just before his arrest, and after detectives told him blood was only found on his side of the bed, Taylor changed the details of his story to say that his wife was sitting on that side instead. Police had identified other inconsistencies in his account of events. He told police that following the nosebleed, the couple had spent the evening at home. He described his wife as being very pale and peaky, saying that she dozed in the living room before heading off to the bedroom. But Taylor's somewhat poised account of events was unravelling, as witnesses confirmed that rather than spending a quiet night at home, the couple had in fact attended a meeting at the village hall that evening for more than two hours. None of the witnesses had noticed Alethea being pale or under the weather, and there had been no talk of a nosebleed. The prosecution made it very clear that they felt the nosebleed was just a cover-up, and they added that Alethea was very clean and house-proud. She was certainly not the sort of person who'd have slept in sheets covered with blood for the two days before she disappeared. They argued the blood came from when Alethea was attacked by Taylor, the night before her disappearance, when the pair had come home following choir practice. They also felt that a missing pillowcase had been used in the killing, as when they searched the couple's bungalow, they found only three pillowcases and a duvet cover from a set of purple bedding. The prosecution asked, what happened to that fourth pillowcase? Was there another stained with Alethea's blood? Taylor replied, no there was not, and I don't know what happened to it. The prosecution then asked, did you use it to put over her face? To which again he responded, no, I did not. The prosecution argued that the events of January the 18th, the day before his wife had gone missing, had been the tipping point for Taylor. He told police he'd been doing the crossword at home in the afternoon when he heard the door slam and his wife walk through it. He said that she'd had a go at him verbally, talking utter gibberish, and asked if he'd even noticed if she had gone. Taylor said that he managed to calm his wife down and later that evening they both headed off to choir practice. But the same attitude she'd showed earlier in the day arose again, and Alethea sat at the back of the hall refusing to move, after claiming someone was sitting in her seat in the alto section. While this was going on, Taylor had to talk with the head of the choir about arrangements for a funeral that week, and when he'd finished and looked up, Alethea was missing. After making inquiries, he eventually found her, at the home of a friend in floods of tears. Between them, they managed to calm her down and they returned home without singing. 
It emerged that this wasn't the first time that Aletheia had run off and been found weeping. On New Year's Eve, Aletheia had become upset at a party the couple had attended at a friend's house. Witnesses had said that at midnight, the pair had not exchanged kisses as you might have expected. Instead, Taylor had snuck outside to send a text to his lover. The prosecution argued that Taylor killed her as he felt his wife was on the point of revealing his affair to the community and potentially jeopardising his future happiness with Alison. He was under considerable pressure at the time. His business was busy with a backlog of funerals that needed to be arranged. There was work that needed doing on the home in Leominster, and he'd promised Alison months ago that they would have started a new life together by Christmas. Although the house sale had delayed these plans, he didn't want to do anything to risk their relationship, so the obstacle had to be removed. With no body, the case was more tricky to prove, but the prosecution was very clear on what they believed had happened. An angry tailor had killed his wife in the bedroom before using his professional ability as an undertaker to wrap her body and drag it outside to his car. A high hedge outside his house gave him perfect cover along with the fact it was a dark winter's night in a rural location. His outstanding local knowledge would have given him the opportunity to drive her body to a secluded spot that night. The police are also suspicious about his actions the next day. He told police he left Alethea doing some chores around the house just before 9am while he visited the farm of a friend to wash his hearse. Taylor said he left the farm at 11, returning home to drop off his bucket and sponge and change out of his Wellington boots before going to the new home he bought in Leominster. He said he only went to the garage and didn't go into the house so he hadn't seen his wife. But two reliable witnesses disputed his version of events, saying that his car was in fact parked on his drive and he was next to it, holding the nozzle of a vacuum cleaner. If he was in fact cleaning the inside of his car, as it appeared he was, then it was very odd behaviour, as he had planned, and indeed he did, visit the refuse tip later that day to dump rubbish from the house in Leominster he was working on. Why would he be hoovering his car before doing that? Doesn't make any sense. Taylor's response was to insist that both witnesses must have been mistaken. But police were clear that he'd made other journeys he hadn't revealed to the police. Unfortunately, in such a rural community there was very little CCTV coverage, so this could not be categorically proved. What was for sure is that he left his house for the new home in Leominster by the supermarket. When he arrived at Leominster, he told the electrician working there that he was getting worried about Alethea he'd not heard from her that morning. Phone records showed he attempted to phone his landline at home at 11.46am but there was no answer. Police know he'd lied to them about this as he told him he made the call from Leominster when cell site analysis showed he could not have made it from the house. From there he visited his lover Alison for an hour before finally returning home. Although there was no sign of Aletheia he didn't call her mobile home as you would have expected. Instead he called Alison the prosecution were again very clear why this was. He knew there was no point calling his wife's mobile as she was already dead. He had killed her. Back in the dock, Alison said that the disappearance of Aletheia cast a black cloud over her continuing affair with Taylor. On the day that Aletheia disappeared, she confirmed that Taylor had visited her and when he got home, he called her and told her his wife was missing. The following day, she went to his house she said it was the first time she'd been there and she'd gone because she wanted to support him 
as he had told her he was not feeling very good. Asked by the prosecution if she was concerned that Mrs Taylor would return, she said, I thought there was a possibility she might come back, but I thought she had left him because she had found out about our relationship. In April or May 2012, Taylor asked her to live with him, but she said she felt the disappearance of Alethea was hanging over them both and she was uncertain about the future. In May, the couple split up. After the month-long trial, the jury took 20 hours to deliberate before returning with their verdict. Guilty of murder. Jailing Taylor for a minimum of 17 years, the judge told him, Since her body has never been found, only you know what became of her. The jury has rejected your defence that you were not responsible. You clearly perceived her as an obstacle to happiness with Alison. She had discovered the affair, and as her notebooks bear out, you were scared she might reveal it. There is a dark and violent side to your personality, which perhaps only Alethea knew. Your anger and frustration boiled over. You attacked her even in the bedroom where her blood was found, or elsewhere, and put her, bleeding, on the bed, then smothered her with a pillow. You then drove her body away in your car. A particularly serious aggravating feature is the concealment. You've even now failed to disclose her whereabouts with all the agony that causes her family and friends. You've shown no remorse because you continue to deny you murdered her. Detective Inspector David Williams said that West Mercia Police's investigation had been complex and challenging and added it was not over yet. He said, We will not rest until we find Alethea and I would urge Mr Taylor to do the right thing and tell us where she is, so those who loved her can have closure and peace of mind. Alethea's niece, Lorraine McKillop, said her aunt was missed by a lot of family and friends. She added, I find it very hard to understand why John would have done this. Why not just walk away, rather than the selfish act of leaving a lot of people wondering where she is? It's not a very happy end to her life, when she has given so much to others, with still much more to give. I hope that someday we can find her and put her to rest in the proper fashion that's so deserving of someone who helped and cared for others. In a way, what we've heard today is the classic case of murder, as most people, as we know, are murdered by those who know them, often their partner. However, one point that has to keep being made and re-stressed is that women are far more at risk of attack from those close to them. In fact, More than 900 women were killed by men in England and Wales over a six-year period up to 2015, mostly by their current or former partners. The Femicide Census, which tracks and analyses the deaths of women killed by partners, ex-partners and other men, was developed by NIA, a charity dedicated to ending violence against women and women's aid. So the exact figures. Between 2009 and 2015... 936 women were killed by men, the census found. Of these, 64% were killed by their current or former partners and 8% by their sons. Women of any age can be victims of femicide, with the census reporting that 149 women aged over 66 were killed in England and Wales over that period. Polly Neat, the chief executive of Women's Aid, said, We accept fatal male violence as an inevitability, not a conscious choice that a man has made to end a woman's life. This dangerous culture needs to change. 
we need to learn the lessons. In the case we've heard today, there was a clear motive for murder. Again, I'm left wondering why Taylor did not just move away and make a fresh start with Alison. Even if he and Alethea had split their finances, this would have left him in a comfortable position to move on and enjoy the rest of his life. Was it his role as an undertaker in a small community that stopped him taking this course of action? Did the social standing matter to him so much that he was prepared to kill? This was a man with no previous convictions. And while he was certainly emotionally abusive to his wife, he'd no background of physical violence. Did he plan to kill his wife or did he just snap on that fateful night in January 2012? Although in court it was argued it was an unplanned decision, he had planted the seed in the community that Alethea was suffering from dementia and prone to wandering off. Does this suggest that even though the exact details weren't planned, there was an element of premeditation? What do you think? And what did he do with the body? His experience as an undertaker means that he would know better than most how to dispose of a corpse. Is she buried somewhere? Or was she concealed in a coffin at one of his funerals he's conducted since her murder? Either way, John Taylor won't be released until he's at least 80, so his life is effectively over. At 63, I wonder if he actually considered this reality if he was caught. Or was he too arrogant to believe that he ever would be? As always, the real sadness here is for Alethea. Having worked hard all her life and found happiness with Taylor and her large circle of friends and her interests in the community, she was surely entitled to a long and happy retirement, continuing to contribute to that local community she loved so much. But that future was all snatched away from her by John Taylor, the man she should have trusted the most to look after her. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. If you would like to support the show, please tell your friends and family, suggest they listen. Or you can further support the podcast by joining us at Patreon for bonus episodes, behind the scenes videos, articles and much more at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UK True Crime. That's all for me for this week. So until we speak again next Tuesday, cheerio for now. Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.